Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. Our first episode of 2022 is with Brentford Director of Football, Phil Giles. He told Simon Austin about the club's first season in the Premier League, their use of specialist coaches, and the possibility of reopening their academy. First, he explained how his career in football started. Going back way back when um, most people sort of leave school and think, what am I going to do? And, uh, and, and my, I guess my skill set was, was in mathematics and uh, that's what I did as a degree. Stayed at university a long time and then finished that and going, how can you combine maths and football? In those days, uh, betting was the only, only way. So I went and uh, applied to be a, a football trader at, uh, at SpreadX. So pricing games, uh, taking bets, hedging bets, trying to make, trying to win for the company. Obviously, that was the plan. Did that for two years and, uh, and enjoyed it and learned quite a lot. And I uh, wasn't really using a lot of the mathematical background that I'd got. And then so an advert to work for um, a company called Smart Odds, which is owned by Matthew Benham, the Brentford owner. And uh, that was in 2007, so you know, nearly 15 years now I've worked for him. Um, and went and did much more of the mathematical stuff. So it was effectively set the challenge of, if you know all the data that happened from past games, how do you predict the next one? How can you work out what's going to happen in the next game? So that was the challenge. So I worked with him on that. And then that one thing led to another. And after I'd worked for a long time, he, uh, he asked me to get involved with Brentford. And that's interesting that you say that that was your kind of avenue at that time, loving football and having that uh, mathematical ability, because that would be quite a desirable, well, very desirable skill set in a football club now, but it, it wasn't at the time then in the same way. No, exactly. I mean, we're going back, you know, when I left university, I said I was there a long time, but I left 17 years ago to even longer time. And yeah, there was there was no, there was no um, or, or very little kind of, Details still work on on football data that would be used by clubs at that time. So that wasn't an angle or an option. So it was never ever an ambition of mine. I mean, obviously it was an ambition to be a football player, but uh, we all have that one, and and, and <laughs> most of us aren't good enough. And I certainly wasn't good enough. So uh, so it was never really a, a thought that you can, could get involved in football via that route. Really, football betting was the closest you were ever going to get to it in those days. And did you get headhunted by Matthew then for Smart Odds? Uh, no, I uh, I just saw an advert and applied. So uh, it was actually an advert set up by their head of quantitative research at the time. So it wasn't it wasn't even Matthew directly. It was one of his one of his staff. Oh, okay. Can you remember the first time you met him? Uh, I can. Um, I think one of the first things we talked about was who do you support? And I said Newcastle, and and he said oh, I'm a Brentford fan, and uh, and I remember being a bit surprised by that because um, I'm not sure I'd ever met a Brentford fan before, and I was expecting Arsenal or Tottenham. I mean. Where uh, where Smarts is based is, is nearest to Arsenal, so I was expecting that and got Brentford. So I was a bit surprised, and uh, actually I remember that quite clearly, to be honest with you. So um, yeah, one of the good things was the you know as a Smarts employee, we got to play at Griffin Park occasionally, you know, end of season stuff. So yeah, there's a few perks to that involvement with Brentford that he had. And um, did, did you work very closely with him in that role? To begin with, not not so closely. And um, I tended to work with the guy who recruited me, and um, guy called Dave Hasty, who was head of head of maths. Um, but then, yeah, got, got just got to know him more and more over time. Just shared ideas, and obviously, he's the he's the he's the big boss in the company. And when you come in at the bottom, you don't tend to work immediately with the big boss. So uh, it sort of develops over time. And um, I think I think the combination of mathematical background, which we both share, he's a he's a degree in physics, um, love of football, and hopefully a knowledge of football with a kind of an understanding of sports betting and how it works. Obviously, myself having developed it as a trader at SpreadX for two years before that meant that actually our kind of interest and knowledge were, were aligned somehow. 
I've exchanged a couple of, I think, tweets with him, actually. I was quite surprised he replied a few years ago. And he, he seems very humble, you know, considering his position. Yeah. No, he, he is. I mean, um, that's one of the best things. You can say what you think. And he, he's very open to, to new ideas or suggestions and doesn't think he knows it all. And sometimes, obviously, you're right. And sometimes, you know, I disagree with you and that, that's okay. You know, that, that, that debate and that back-and-forth process uh, is really helpful in terms of arriving at hopefully good ideas and good solutions to problems. You spoke about trying to predict um, future matches, what would happen, the results and so on. Is that quite transferable then to the job you went on to do with Brentford? Parts of it. um, I think part of it is understanding how good a team is in the first place. If you're trying to predict a, a future result, you need to know how good two teams are now. And then what makes them good? Well, of course, when it comes to buying seven players, that's kind of part of the battle, right? So if we can find teams that are better than us, who've got therefore got better players that are better than us, it helps you identify players, right? So, so that was that. But I think um, coming into Brentford, what, what I learned was a football club is, is a very different thing compared to a regular business because regular businesses are trying to make something and sell something generally. Um, whether that be making this in terms of an actual thing you can hold or, or some sort of IP or, or software or whatever it might be. Whereas the football club is, or at least the football side, I know we sell, try and sell tickets, right? But the football half a department not doing that, you basically, you're basically dealing with people and that's it. There's, there's nothing else in our training ground. There's a few, a few buildings, but effectively you're dealing with grass, football and, and people and that's it. And, and there's some rules around the game, but it's all about managing people. So 95% of it is people management and actually, and those things I learned from being in Brentford, which have actually helped me outside of Brentford as well. So um, so not only did I hopefully learn stuff to take into Brentford, I actually took stuff out as well. And um, we had Greg Broughton actually on, uh, I think it was about two or three podcasts back. And he was talking about work he'd done for the uh, technical director's course. And I think he'd interviewed you for that. And Neil, you helped him with that. Um, and he was talking about your use of the R rating, which was interesting. Because it seems to me often in football, the clubs that just focus on the next result, that's often not a good metric, really. Whereas if you're focusing on a longer term R rating, that that could be more effective. Yeah, I think the important thing is to to have a look. I mean, to put it in simple language, have a look at how you're playing. Basically, are you playing well? Or are you not playing well? Uh, forget about the results. I think you know you can come away from a game, and when you've won, you know, be be have this kind of happy feeling that you won the game. And not often it's um, do you win a game and play really badly and be obviously kind of going, wow, we got lucky there. That was, thank God for that. It's often a lot more subtle than that. So you might win, but think, you know, having won, think, oh, yeah, we did okay. And then you win again, you think we did okay. And you win again, we did okay. But actually each occasion you were a little bit below par. And over time that's going to build up. If you're a little bit below par, a little bit below par, actually what's it, what that's saying to you is, Perhaps we're not doing as well as we thought we did, even if we've got the points on the board. That eventually will catch up with you. So my job is really to try and be as unemotional about results as possible and look at the underlying performance and not get too carried away by one performance either way. Everyone can throw in a good performance or a bad performance now and again, but look for trends and patterns in that and try and identify what the underlying causes might be. If you are focused too much just on the next result and doing well in the league that season that is going to be limiting if, if that is your focus and your measure in my job yeah I mean obviously for the for the players and, and coaching stuff that is the, the be all end all they've got the squad they've got they've got the injuries and suspensions that, that are there we can't change that so 
they have to crack on and try and win the game. That's their focus. Don't have to worry too much about the long term. Um, leave that to myself and then obviously teammates around me, Lee, and uh, and work out, you know, not not how are we going to win the next game, but how are we going to be better as a group after the next window and after the one after that. And that can involve adding players, obviously, to make you better, but it might involve selling players in order to reinvest or, 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 or renew the squad in some way. Um, and is there still a close link between Smart Odds and the club? Do, do they intertwine? Brentford, as a, as a company, will, will pay for services. I mean, Smart Odds is a service provider. At the end of the day, it's not a betting company per se. Um, it's a, a service provider in the, in the various sectors, uh, a, data, a data company and service provider. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll avail ourselves, I guess, to be the right way of their services, uh, you know, from time to time to help us out. But they're, they're still very distinct companies. And we've had a few sporting directors on the podcast. Um, and I know the role, the titles can differ, the responsibilities. Um, would you say you're in, in charge of the whole football department then? So performance, medical analysis, recruitment, everything that is ultimately under your umbrella? Yeah, I think I think the point you make about difference, um, you know, a head coach or manager more or less does the same thing, day to day at least anyway. Uh, but a sporting director it seems to be quite a varied job title, especially in England. But for me, what that means is the club is effectively split into two halves. There's the training ground and everything that happens down there. I'm in charge of everything you know, incorporated there. And then there's the stadium and our offices and commercial and you know marketing, ticketing, operations. That's our chief executive looks after that. And I think that's a that's a good split because it means you know I haven't got the time to focus on ticketing or anything like that. And I'm not sure how a chief executive could be focused on that and also running a really, really strong and recruitment department. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of chief executives do, but I think that's a hell of, that's a there's a hell of a job they do to be able to do them both of them things well. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a good division of responsibility, and obviously there is quite a natural. You know, they're, they're two very different things as well. So it might be that there's two very different skill sets needed to uh, recruit and negotiate on player contracts versus create a commercial strategy for friendships, uh, sponsorships, and that sort of thing. How much knowledge do you need of each of those areas? On the football side? On the football side, yeah, because they're quite different, aren't they, if you're looking yeah. at medical versus recruitment, analysis? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not a coach. I'm not a, a physio. I'm not a sports performance person, psychological performance person. I'm not a scout and uh, and I'm not a club secretary and I don't organise the logistics in terms of travel. Uh, but these are all... <laughs> so, in fact, I know nothing. I mean, really, I know nothing about any, what anyone does. I, I shouldn't really be in the job, frankly, if you think about it that way, because I don't have any of the skill sets. But, but the key thing, obviously, is recruit good people, good staff members. It's a bit like building a team on the pitch as well, right? Recruit good staff members who are good at their job, good people, let them do the job, help where you can. Um, and that might mean them come to me for advice or might mean them me going to them and making suggestions or ideas, but effectively being a collaboration and uh, be a sounding board and, uh, and let them get on with the jobs, really. That's the key thing. But... If, if you're surrounded by good people, it makes the job so much easier and, and I'm very fortunate that I am. And that seems very difficult, actually, to recruit the backroom team in all those different areas. Have you got any sort of uh, tips or insights on how you do that, how you find the best people? We always run a recruitment process. Nearly, well, I'm not saying nearly always. I'm not sure we all, I can't say we always have. But the, the first thing is to, is to think about how can we advertise this more widely? Obviously, I think you know your platform as well has helped us a little bit in that in terms of um, um, the recruitment of staff. But I think that's it's relevant in two ways. One is 
you know, if, if I just focus on my contacts and network, I have a very small subset of the available people out there. And I'm sure I don't know, you know, there must be some people out there who are, who are, who are so good at their jobs that I wouldn't actually know. Um, and even if you do a recruitment process, which doesn't result in some particular person getting a, a job, it helps you build your contact base and your network for future future cases as well. So that's very helpful. So by doing that, um, you get the best possible candidate. Um, you keep on a turnover of staff and new ideas coming in the club as well by recruiting externally rather than always focusing on, focusing on people you know uh, internally or externally. And um, another thing is obviously um, you know a, a bigger focus today than has ever been is on the sort of diversity of your workforce as well. And we have certain... Certain targets, but not, they're not targets for the sake of targets. They're targets because we believe that a more diverse workforce will be a better workforce. By advertising externally, we get a much broader range of, of, of diversity of candidate as well. And that's really important. That is something I've noticed in football, actually, more than other industries, is a lot of the recruitment is from an existing network, really. And, and there won't be what I would call a proper recruitment process. Um, mm-hmm. So you're maybe a bit different to a lot of clubs in that regard. Yeah, I mean, having not been at another club, I'm not quite sure myself where what, what other clubs do or don't do. But um, all I can say is that that's the way we do it. Um, I think it's a good way. Uh, sometimes we'll, what we'll do as well is we'll we'll do a recruitment process. We'll have an internal application and we'll employ the internal person, like promote them up a step. And I think that's that's good as well because not only is it good to show that we reward our own staff on their career path, we also demonstrate to them that they were the best of, of, a, of a proper recruitment process not just had it handed on a plate. Um, so they earned it themselves. So uh, so I think it's good to do it from that perspective as well. And how did you split responsibilities with Rasmus before he left? So, again, if you split the thing, the, the, the job of the sporting director into two bits, recruitment and everything else, on a recruitment basis, effectively would see who was in the best place to do, do the deal. So if it was signing Christian Norgard or, or Maddie Sensen, Danish players, obviously he was normally the best place to be able to do that. Whereas we signed, I don't know, Ollie Watkins, for example, Ryan Woods, or going back, you know, years, Rico Henry, I was best placed to do that. It wasn't always a UK overseas split. Rasmus led on the Ivan Tony deal. But in general, we, we saw who was best or who had the, the bandwidth to be able to take on a, a different project and then uh, split it up like that. Mm. Uh, selling players was more often me, more often me to sell players. And then the rest of the job, in terms of managing the day-to-day Staff and 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 who they who the head of medical and head of performance reported into it was generally me. I'd meet the staff and work on budgets and uh, appraisals and and all this stuff in terms of managing the team. Rasmus tended to be a bit more floating around, having having ideas and, and meeting people and networking contacts and bringing things to the table, which often you know, good ideas. And we, we looked at how we'd implement them. So yeah, I think I think that over time, it the way we worked it out was it just fell into our natural skill sets. It was actually a bit different to what we imagined at the start, but because we are quite different characters, um, it actually worked out quite well that we were so different and we could take on quite different tasks and not be trying to compete with each other to do the same stuff. Yeah, and I know Rasmus was was executive chairman of Micheland. Is there quite a lot of crossover then between between the two again? And how, how does that work? There's, there's good 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 relations. There's also directors in common between the clubs as well. There's good relations sort of off the pitch I can't really say because I'm not really too directly involved with that on the pitch you obviously brought on Frank Onyeka in the summer we've used uh, we've we've had the opportunity to put lone players into Michelin Emiliano, Emiliano Macondes uh, in the past went to Michelin when he wasn't playing for us came back 
probably a better player, having played minutes for them, got himself much much fit, and obviously then uh, had an impact for us scored in the playoff final last season. So so that's been good. If a player is not getting the minutes here, they can go out to to Midland. I don't think we do that in the same way as the Red Bull Group or the City Group. You know, I don't think there's quite that kind of movement of players between us, but it but it happens. Um, obviously, the recruitment uh, networking and scouting is shared, which is, makes us more efficient. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think that's more or less it. I mean, like I say, it's not it's not a group structure that we you know there's this kind of almost you know very very close working relationship. They are independent clubs at the end of the day. Still, Michelin's a successful club in its own right, and up, up till this season, you know, we were in the championship and they were in the Champions League. You know, so it, 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 they both had their own targets and ambitions, and we're, and we're just trying to achieve their own success. So, so the recruitment would be quite separate in a way. Then you wouldn't talk to a player with a kind of either or option. They might go to Brentford or Denmark. No, no, no. no. The principles and the scouting and the scouting database and stuff might be the same, but ultimately, when it came down to a player, we, we I'm trying to think of case. I can't really think of too many cases historically where it was like, oh, you might want to come to either. And also, players themselves, you know, are in different parts of their career. Some are desperate to come to England. Some want to play Champions League. So there was very few cases like that. And in fact, the players that we looked at for scouting, more or less it was pretty straightforward who was a, a Michelin potential target and who would be a Brentford potential target. We've covered Brentford a lot during the uh, time of the site. So we've been going about five years. And I think there are a number of areas where you are very innovative. One of them, I think, is in the specialist coaches. So, you know, we've covered throwing coach, you've had ball striking, sleep, psychology. And a lot of them have gone on to other clubs, haven't they? Bigger clubs. How did that come about in the first place? And whose idea was that to, to have those specialists? Yeah, a lot of that was from Rasmus. I think there were people who were involved at Michelin before anyway. People like Bartek, who was our free kick specialist, did some work over there and, and, and then came to Brentford. We had Thomas Gronemark, who, again, Michelin came to Brentford. I think he's done some work at others, like Liverpool possibly as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so other clubs have used these people as well. So these, these tend to be ind- more independent consultants rather than employees of the club. They tend to go on and, and, and use their expertise. And perhaps we were the, um, not the first, but uh, early adopters, let's say, of, of, of giving it a chance. Let's, let's see what it can bring. Sometimes it can be quite successful. Sometimes we've had less success, but I think the most important thing is being open-minded to try it. Um, you know, we've done things like uh, one season under Dean. We we had no actually the Dean's last season. We started the season. We didn't have a club captain. We just said, well, let's, let's just see if we can rotate it around a little bit. See if that inspires some people to take take more of a, a leadership role. How how I mean, we ultimately were quite a young squads. So how do you kind of develop those young young players to take more leadership responsibility? Some good bits about that. Some bad bits. Thomas, when he came in, appointed a captain again. No problem. The point is, we tried it and we we still see whether we had some success. So. If you don't try it, you, you'll you'll just keep on doing what everyone else has done always in the past and always and will do in the future. And then, you know, how, how do we then differentiate ourselves and, and and find out what works for us and what could be done better in football in general? We had uh, Dave Redding on one of our webinars. I mean, he was the head of performance at the FA, and he'd worked in England rugby before and with uh, Team GB. And he was saying he thought that was an area where football was behind other sports in the use of the specialist coaches. So he obviously used Brentford as an example of a club that had latched onto this. Really. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we've, we've got a, we, yeah, we got, I, mean, I don't want to, it's one, it's one of these areas where it's a bit difficult to talk about it sometimes because obviously I don't necessarily want to talk too much into it about, yeah, this is what we do. This is what we're trying to do right now today. Because uh, obviously 
yeah, the next thing is the the next thing is our our set piece coach, for example. You know, our first set piece coach, Nicholas, was ended up at Man City, and now he's at Arsenal. Our next set piece coach ended up at Arsenal, and now he's back in Sweden, I think. So yeah, they can quickly move on. So uh, so yeah, we tried to um, you know use set piece coaches, and and now I think you know Villa have one. Actually, the guy a guy was at Midtjylland actually he's called Austin McPhee. So uh, yeah, there are these guys floating around, and um, and we've tried we've like I said we've tried to be early adopters, but it's a bit difficult to talk about exactly what we do right now without those those <laughs> those guys being the targets of the next Man City and Arsenal, right? So, is that an area where you would impact the coaching staff? You'd say, look, you know, this is the data, this is the number of set pieces, this is the impact we can have, and get them to do more work on it. Then, yeah, correct, more or less. And, and I think um, that, that those conversations were generally Rasmus, but we will collect the data on it, and and obviously, you know, Mitchland. Again, just because of the success they had um, in set pieces, it was easy to look across across the water at what they were doing and say, "Well, they're doing it and scoring this many goals, and are probably the best, could be the best in the world." Frankly, at this, they may well be. What about if we get our ten goals to our tally at the end of the season just by scoring ten more free kicks and goals? What would that do for us? Because you know, don't forget that when Brian came here, Thomas came here, we were finishing sort of ninth, tenth area of the championship which is good for a club the size of Brentford but of course we wanted to get into the playoffs and go higher so so yeah so you just asked, pose that theoretical question if we get 10 more set piece goals how, 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 much, how much difference would that make well the answer is it would probably put us in the playoffs right and it's interesting that as you say because you didn't have the resources you had to be more innovative and then a lot of the bigger clubs have followed your lead afterwards but now you have got more resources in the Premier League you've got a new stadium is there a risk that will make you less innovative? That's a very good question. Ask me in a, in a, in a couple of years. Right. Hopefully we'll still be in the Premier League in a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing you could say is um, it doesn't really matter what league we're in. Relative to the rest of that league, we'll be always be the, the poor relations. I mean, we were pretty much had the, we had the, pretty much the lowest revenue in the championship year on year on year on year. The lowest, like 23rd or 24th when we were in Griffin Park. And we had this... Uh, you know, sustain ourselves by selling players. That's simple. Now, if you look at us in the, in the Premier League, obviously the amount of, you know, commercial revenue we get will be lower. We haven't got the biggest stadium. We've only been there one year. Um, we're not, you know, obviously you've got more money for finishing higher up. We obviously haven't done that yet. So, so yeah, look, for, for quite a considerable time in the future, I think we'll be the lowest income club in the Premier League. And I think the reputation of the club went kind of far and wide, didn't it, really? And I, I even read a story that Thomas Tuchel had come into uh, Smart Odds. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he did. Um, let's think that would have been 2015. I think it was between jobs. I think it was before he went to Dortmund. Oh. Um, and um, and that, was a, yeah, that was a relationship that I think he got through Matthew, I believe. And, and Brentford had just got the playoff... Playoffs in the championship, and we were looking to sort of progress as a club. And um, he'd he'd obviously done very well at Mainz, I think, before that. So always good to share ideas with him and his ideas on coaching. And obviously, the some of the coaching ideas that were being progressed in Germany at that time were a little bit different over here. And we needed a new manager in 2015. And and obviously, we were looking at you know different parts of Europe. We we took a Dutch manager. Actually, we were looking in Germany as well. Didn't work out for us. We went. We ended up going back to English. But you know. Yeah, he, he then obviously was interested in kind of what we were doing, the data we were collecting, the sort of recruitment ideas we had, which we hadn't really established 
in detail at that point, but we wanted there was a direction we wanted to take it in. And obviously, over the last sort of five six years, it's shown to be relatively relatively successful. I think. Yeah, was he actually under consideration to be your head coach? Then? Uh, well, we, yeah, I mean, look, we would love to have Tom, Thomas Tuchel be our, our head coach, but that was never <laughs> never realistic. You know, he went to Dortmund, right? I mean, <laughs> sure, yeah, sure, yeah, he was in the consideration. We considered him. Yeah. Let's consider. Who should we consider? We'll consider. Well, let's well, let's consider Klopp and Guardiola and Tuchel. We'll consider them. Yeah, great. <laughs> Ten seconds of consideration, and then back to reality. Yeah. <laughs> did Did you stay in touch with him after that? I haven't, but um, like I said, I, you know, I think occasionally maybe Matthew sent a message, or he, you know, vice versa. But like I said, I'm not privy to to those conversations. That's, uh, that's no. up to him. But I, yeah. I haven't. And I suppose another innovation was scrapping the academy 2016, which was a controversial move. How do you think that's worked out? And uh, has it gone as planned? Has it worked out? Well, the, the aim six, or when was it, 2016? So, yeah, five and a half years ago, when we made that decision, the aim was to get promoted. That was the aim. You know, we could talk about developing players and we can talk about um, bringing young players through, but Ultimately, we wanted to get promoted. So we decided we'd focus absolutely everything through everything at that objective. So from that perspective, you could say, yes, it's been successful because, you know, when we when we, when we we got promoted last year, if you look at the players who played in the team, we had players like Mazbek Sorensen played something like 25 games, came through our B team. Marcus Force, whilst not a regular starter, scores plenty of goals, scored the winning goal against Bournemouth in the playoff semi-final, which obviously was critical to getting us there. Uh, he was a B team player. He was he was playing with being released. You know, we we saw these opportunities of players who who would get released but go on again, and we thought we could pick them up. He's a good example of that. And we saw the opportunity to bring players from overseas. So Madsbeck would be an example. And Mads Ruslev played. He was injured a bit last year, but he played quite a lot, especially at the end of the season. Played in the playoff final. I think he might have got the assist for Mark Andres in the playoff final goal, I believe from memory. Um, so if you if you think about it that way, what we did is we took players who yes they were young. But they were much closer to the first team than we were going to get through the academy system, and we're ready to make an impact and try and get promoted as quickly as possible. And um, and so ultimately we did that. And then there's other players who made contributions over over a period of time as well. Probably forgetting quite a few bits who played quite a lot of minutes last season, um, and others before that. So so overall, I'm I'm pretty happy with the way that worked out. Now, obviously, over time things have things have evolved and changed. So the Madsbeck Sorensons and the Mads Rislevs of this world. And Jan Zambarek and players like that who've come in and played minutes for us, that, that route has been closed because of because of Brexit. So that makes our lives a little bit more difficult. So over a more recent period, we've focused on players like Matt Cox from Wimbledon. We've focused on Daniel Oyegok from Arsenal, players who've been in other academies who we've brought in, who perhaps the contracts ended. Daniel Oyegok was leaving Arsenal, he didn't want to extend there, and we brought him into us and we look to progress him. Um, so that's been a, there's been a change over time in that. Uh, and obviously now we're playing at a higher level, so the players have to be better coming in anyway. Now, that's interesting. So that wouldn't change your approach to youth development, though, and uh, the B team. And you wouldn't reconsider reinstating some of those academy teams because of that, because of Brexit. We're, we're always completely open-minded, you know, to, to doing what we think is right at this moment in time. So as the facts change, your opinions need to change as well. So the facts have changed with, with Brexit and, and, and with us getting promoted. We're in a fundamentally different place now than we were five and a half years ago. So you've always got to look at that. Plus, of course, we um, if we ever got into Europe, we wanted to do that. We need a UEFA license, and there's some you know academy type 
requirements that we need to meet, some boxes boxes we need to tick in order to get a UF license as well. So so again, that's got to play a factor. So so look, you've always got to have it under consideration. For me, it's not a it's not a philosophical point of view of academies, good, bad, right, wrong, you know, whatever. That's not the decision we made five and a half years ago. If I'd been in that job in in in, in say Newcastle, let's say if I'm gonna say because I'm from there, you would never ever have made that decision because it's got a big catchment area, lots and lots of young players who want to come and play and it should it should bring players through. So you totally, you know, if, if I'm Chelsea, you know, it makes huge amounts of money for them, right? I mean, they bring loads of players through, but they're, then they're Chelsea. But again, they're right next door to us, right? <laughs> you know, in terms of our catchment, they're right next door. So, so yeah, so, it's, you know, we're, we're in a different place now. We're a Premier League club, not a championship club. And we were cat two at the time and, and obviously Chelsea cat one. So, so listen, it, it's always under review. All right, so, so that's something you could consider to apply to go back into E Triple P potentially. Yeah, potentially, potentially. It's always we'll keep it under review and, and under consideration. Yeah. Obviously, if, if we if we ever got in the Champions League and they said we can't play because you haven't got an academy, then what are we going to do? Cut our nose off to spite our face to say well, we're never going to open one, so we'll not play. I mean, it's like it'll be not, it'll be a nonsensical decision. Um, however, what I would want to do is make sure that we went back and there, uh, and it was like the very very best academy we could possibly open for us in our area with the size of club we got and probably most likely keep keep that B-team element going to it as well because I think that has been successful. Okay, I'll give you another thing that's changed over the last period with COVID. It's been much, much harder to organise the games for the B-team than we've done before where we could fly out to wherever we like to travel around the country. Obviously, that's just a lot harder right now. So so again, th- things, things change over time and you've got to reflect your current circumstances. I didn't actually realise that about European competition. You need to have an academy then to go into Europa League or Champions League. Yeah, exactly. Okay, right. I suppose that's never come up before, has it, with the the clubs that have uh, closed the no. academies or downgraded? No, correct, exactly. So we 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 we'll be testing, you know, in good old Brentford style, we'll be pushing the boundaries and hopefully testing things. I mean, like there's one one way you look at it is say is is to say, well. You know, if you were ever in that situation and refused to play because of an academy, you know, because of a, a technical issue, you know, I think there'll be something fundamentally wrong about that. Frankly, and, you know, the, the the sporting merit would go out the window and it'd be a technical yeah. element based on developing young young players. And like I would look at it and say, well, if it comes to developing young people, young players, and playing young players. I don't think you could see a better example of that than Brentford over the last number of years. Like <laughs> we've really focused on that. And yet we'd somehow be held up by the fact that we were not developing players. And it's not players who, you know, it's players like Marcus Forster. He, he, was, he was released from his academy, you know. We gave him the opportunity to come in and play with us. It's not a, you know, or, or um, it's players like Finn Stevens. He was on the bench a lot for us last season. Young player came from Worthing, you know. We gave him that pathway back up. Uh, released from Arsenal's academy, went to Worthing, played a year at 17 at Worthing, uh, or 16, 17 came to us into our B team and we provided that pathway back into professional football that he, he sort of fell out of before. For me, that feels like a good thing, a good opportunity for us, first of all, to look at that market, but also good for those players, you know? Um, and we've covered a lot on academies over the years and it seems to me that obviously there is a big difference between being a cat one and, you know, having the pick of the players, you can hold on to your players, bigger catchment you can go to than being a cat two as you were before in a very competitive area I think the biggest advantage probably is the is the games program right the, the, yeah, yeah. the cat one teams have got the better players then they're playing against each other then they're getting better development games against hot tougher opposition which 
then then attracts better players in itself. The better players, the young players who, you know, they want to go to Cat One to, to challenge themselves in those better games programs. So it's kind of almost like as a it's kind of it's kind of feedback mechanism that the better players want to go there. They play against better players, they get better. That's great for the Cat One teams, the better players. But it also means that there's a pull towards like a gravitational pull towards those academies. Um, and also what you'll see now is because the bigger clubs can't, they also can't take players from overseas now because of Brexit. They also will look at cap three, cap four clubs and look at their better players at 14 or 15 and want to take them in. And they'll want to, and these players will gravitate there. So again, you sort of have to question whether whether the best young players in the smaller academies are they getting those teams in the in the in those first teams or whether they just become a kind of a a mechanism for free for gaining um uh, compensation payments yeah and you mentioned covid there and the effect it's had on the b team um just as a bit of an aside i was re- reading that you've done your phd on uh pandemics was, was that right yeah correct so yeah so like like i was saying I, I don't, i'm not not i'm not qualified in any way to to be in a football club really yeah. <laughs> coaching scouting physio nothing um the one thing i'm qualified in is predicting how epidemics will spread. So I guess that was um you know somewhat of an advantage going not not now but going way back to the start. Um we we well I certainly took quite a pessimistic view of how that might pan out over the coming months. And so we took some measures to try and protect ourselves uh, financially um just you know on a on a just in case basis. And obviously, you know, we, we didn't see fans in the ground now after that for another 18 months. So or more more or less 18 months other than a few here and there. So so able, we were able to navigate not just not just because of me, but also because the way the, the club is, we we were well on top of it, I think, um, and 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 handled it pretty well. Oh, that's interesting. So that that knowledge that you gained actually helped you. Then you're able to forward plan a little bit and foresee what was potentially going to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, not directly as a result of anything I knew or did, but just I think in general, when we got down, had a conversation about what, where it might go, we looked at some worst case scenario situations and didn't say, well, that'll happen, but. If it does happen, then we need to do A, B, C, and D to protect ourselves, and um, and so we did that. And then obviously, it ended up being like more of a worst case scenario than perhaps people had imagined in the first say week or two. And um, what have been your reflections on the uh, Premier League season so far? Seems like it's gone very well for you, looking in from the outside. Yeah, well, I think it has. Um, we've got twenty three points. I don't think that's far off probably being the right number. Frankly, I, I don't think. I mean. I don't remember too many performances that you think, wow, we were, we were well well off it there. We would be competitive pretty much all the time. The first half of Burnley wasn't great, but apart from that, we've been very much in games. We've not been we've not been hammered by anyone. You know, we've not hammered anyone ourselves. It's been they've been tight games. You know, we've I think we've improved. You know, you talk about our underlying level and looking tracking our underlying level. I think we see it's slightly better than what we were at the start of the season. Um, obviously, we've we've had to learn about playing in the Premier League, but we've also done it without a lot of our better players being available. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that all clubs miss their better players. Villa were missing Ollie Watkins when we played him on Sunday, just gone. Arsenal were missing their players with COVID. On the first game of the season, we beat them 2 0. Obviously, it was a very different Arsenal team that one to what you see now, which is which are flying. So that obviously has an impact. But when you think that, you know, our goalkeeper, David Rea, our record signing, Chris Ajay, have been out. We've had uh, who else have we had out? You know, Rico Henry's been out at times. Brian Burnwell's been out at times. Uh, Ivan Ivan Tony was out for a couple of games. Yeah, we've 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 generally Wister Johan uh, Wisser was probably our second record signing. He was out f- for about three months as well. 
Mazbek Sorensen has been out. So we've had plenty of issues to cope with. I know all clubs have them, but if you think about it, we've not. I don't think we can say we've been really lucky with injuries, and, and, and that's helped us. I think we've kind of had our fair share and still cope with it, which is which is encouraging. I remember a fans forum that you did in October. Um, and they asked you what you thought the chances of staying up were, and you said 20 to 30% at that time. Um, wonder what you would put the percentage as now. Oh, good, good question. I mean, I, to be honest, I've not really checked it. Best way to do it, if you if you, if you don't have any other results whatsoever, just go on the bookmaker's website and see what the odds are. That's generally a fairly good guide. Um, what are we going to be? 10% something to go down at the minute, maybe? Something like that? Yeah. If we're 12 points, well, that's in my check, we have a 12-point gap. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too wrapped up in those um, in those probabilities and stop, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, it looks like we're going to be staying in the league or whatever. As soon as you start thinking that, that's when you're in trouble. Um, the focus for me is, the, the, the benefit, I think, of that, that is that it helps guide you a little bit in the journey window. So in the past, if we'd be mid-table in the championship, yes, we might have thought we dream of still making a run and getting in the playoffs, but the bit underlying stats say it's pretty unlikely. It's a 5% chance or it's a, it's a 20% chance of, of getting in the playoffs and then a one in four chance of winning the playoffs. So a 5% chance of promotion. Again, you know, is it worthwhile throwing money in the January window for a 5% chance of promotion or do you better plan for next season? Well, it helps guide that a little bit. But ultimately, you know, the, the key thing for me is just keeping on getting better. That's that's the most important thing, really. So probabilities help help guide you a little bit, but every decision we'll try and make will be saying, how can we be better the rest of the season? How can we be even better next season? How can we make sure we we compete and you know progress in the league and be be an asset to the league and be interesting in the league? And, and hopefully we have been quite an interesting club this season. People have enjoyed watching us against the Liverpools and Man Cities and we've done well. We want to keep that going. And I know you said earlier that you actually have one of the lowest budgets in the championship, but I think I saw a chart where you actually had the highest net spend last season. Um, yeah. So I was just wondering, did you kind of look at it and think this is our big chance we are going to spend more and really go for it I would say um, yeah not not lowest budget lowest revenue outside of transfers basically and it was so our budget had increased from you know the bottom when I came in in the bottom quarter of the of the division let's say um, had increased over time but really that was the result of spending the net proceeds of sales so you Chris Mebbins and going back Andre Grace, Scott Hogan, Ryan Woods, um, who else did we sell? Neil Mope, and obviously Watkins and Ben Rama. Um, that was obviously key and that allowed us to go out and spend more. So I think it was probably a combination of you know the sales allowing us to go and invest a bit more, but also over time, the number of teams, you know, when I started, there was quite a few big teams and big spending teams in the championship. Even teams who didn't, you know, but there was obviously your, your Villas and your Newcastles, but even even Sheffield Wednesday at one time were spending a lot of money and, and Forest would. And, and obviously with COVID, it became more difficult for those clubs to spend. Derby would spend money in the past, for example. Just a combination of a, a drop overall in spending from those clubs. And maybe we kind of more just maintained it, really, having had given ourselves the opportunity by selling players. So, yeah, but, but, but that still doesn't change that the underlying revenue was still low from commercial operations and ticketing and Griffin Park was, you know, tiny and gave us no opportunities to make money whatsoever, really. So that was a conscious decision, really, because of COVID and the fact the the competitors weren't spending as much. We weren't really looking at the competitors and we weren't thinking about COVID, but it just over time it just it just happened that you know you could look at it and say, you know, we were lucky a little bit that some of the players did so well for us and we were able to 
make good profit on them. You know, we certainly didn't buy Ollie Watkins and say the good news is we'll sell them for a 15 times profit. And what we, you know, that was never the plan. But the fact we were able to do it, and we had a good season, we were, we did end up with a very good player, allowed us to capitalise a little bit. And just the final one, Phil, what are your own personal ambitions? Because there have been stories linking you with Newcastle, uh, for example. Uh, what, what do you see the future as for yourself? You'll have to show me where those stories get. I haven't seen those stories. I know they're looking for... I'm in the Daily Mail, I think, as I remember. Oh, well, I, well I, there you go. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, look at how long has it been. I've been, I've, been, I've been doing this job now for one week on my own. So um, let's see how I get on on my own, right? Because I guarantee that... Um, if we uh, if we now have a run of bad results or, or a bad transfer window, or whatever, everyone say, yeah, you see, it was all Rasmus all along. You that guy, that guy, Phil, he was hopeless. <laughs> Should never it just knew it was Rasmus, and obviously vice versa. If we do well, obviously they'll say, yeah, what was that guy Rasmus doing? He, he must be adding anything. And of course, the truth is, no, any of those those two polls, you know. But obviously, the narrative will follow the results as it always does. So no, look, I've, I've got my ambition is to just keep keep building Brentford up, and let's just see where we get to. I have no idea where this club can get to ultimately. You know, no, genuinely no clue as to where we might end up after. You know, when we get to the end of whatever journey we're on, when we get to the end of that point, I have no idea. But just keep enjoying it, right? Yeah, that's the plan. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Phil. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.